Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Cynthia. And I'm Yvette. And this is episode 15. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down the barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. On this episode, we'll be discussing the case Dred Scott versus Sanford, the case that held that all people of African ancestry, including those who had been freed from slavery, were ineligible for citizenship and thus could not sue in court. For current events, we'll discuss the recent conviction of the first quote-unquote black identity extremist, a new FBI categorization that is part and parcel of a history of surveilling black activists. And for deep thoughts, we'll be discussing gaslighting, a really harmful practice that denies the reality of marginalized people. So, Yvette, before we get started, how have you been? I feel like we haven't done a full episode in such a long time. Yeah, um, this quarter is overall good. I'm in the Immigrants' Rights Clinic this quarter, and I'm really enjoying it because I'm gaining skills that are going to be really concrete and useful for next year. Um, and I also have a healthier work-life balance because the clinic is really strictly 9 to 5, whereas law school regular hours are not 9 to 5. There are no regular hours, I feel, for like the rest of law school. Yeah, people like... Like, I've heard professors say that you should treat it like a 40-hour-a-week job, but I just feel like it's so much more time-consuming than that. Not just that, but, like, one of my classes doesn't get out until 7.15, but I start, like, my earliest class around 9.30, so... Yeah. Yeah. Kind of (laughs) hard. And my weekends are free now, too, which is definitely not the case when I'm, you know, doing coursework. Yeah. Yeah. How are you? Uh, Doing well. This week was really busy because we had a lot going on, uh... You know, I've posted about this on social media, but we uh, started this whole Racism Lives Here Too campaign. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's just been a really great process to be a part of and a great campaign to be a part of. I love all the people that are super involved with it, but it has been just really tiring and really stressing. But it's for good reasons, so I'm okay with it. Also, if y'all heard like a bump earlier just now, it's because we have a cat with us. Opal. Yes. My roommate. (laughs) is here recording with us so if you hear any more cat sounds you know if you wanted to listen to something without hearing background noise Yvette do you have anything you'd recommend for that situation yeah um so there's studio headphones um there I have the white pair of headphones that's really sleek and stylish um and it has wireless capability which is a new thing for me because I usually just get like regular earphones that are not wireless or fancy at all um and i think they're you know if you regularly listen to podcasts if um you're regularly using headphones or earphones um and you want to splurge on yourself then i think this uh company has headphones that are worth checking out have you been using them in clinic yeah yeah because the clinic space is really loud and it's like an open cubicle space and Mm -hmm. like the people adjacent to me are, like, very, very chatty, so it's, <laughs> it's really important to use headphones, also because they're really good at noise canceling, um, so, yeah, it makes a big difference in clinic. That's so dope. Um, oh, yeah, and if you are so interested in buying them and choose to buy them, which we recommend, if you can get a 15% discount if you type in Cerebronas at checkout. So, um, let's get to the infamous case Dred Scott v. Sanford, which was decided in 1857, and uh, fun fact, I guess, 
that it's the person's name was actually Sanford, but like there was just like a typo, and so this case is actually misnamed for all eternity. Oh wow. Yeah. Anyways, uh, Yvette, so why, I know this was, you wanted to talk about this case for this episode. Why, why did you want to talk about Dred Scott? I feel like it's important to talk about Dred Scott and more generally the history of slavery in the U.S. because it's a a largely ignored part of American history. And like, actually there's multiple states in the South that are engaging in intentional and concerted efforts to erase slavery from American history or like, Texas specifically has tried to make it seem like slavery had benefits for the black <laughs> community, which is insane and disgusting. Which is not just the South, right? Because like Ben Carson in one of his speeches like called people brought over from Africa in chains immigrants, right? And so like this whole changing the narrative about what happened, it's like it's it's a little terrifying how many people are doing it. Yeah, it's wild to have a black man saying that. Um, ben Carson, so many issues with Ben Carson. Um, And then also I think it's important to talk about how there's tiers of citizenship. Like I feel like people think about it as black and white, like you're a citizen or you're not. But kind of related to what we were talking about in episode three, um, the U.S. doesn't love you back. Like People of color have a fundamentally different experience in regards to citizenship. And we can't act like citizenship affords everybody the same privileges that it does for white people. you know, citizenship means different things for different bodies, and I think this is a case that actually, like, codified this into law and documented it for us to look back at and see um, how that was occurring. Oh, and then, yeah, Brian Stevenson. <laughs> we'll talk about Brian Stevenson. I love him. I think he's so amazing. Yeah. Um, so he wrote the book Just Mercy, which Cynthia and I both read, and we really liked it. Um, also, we just, like, generally appreciate his work. Um and he's a lawyer and he has talked about how the u.s needs to openly reckon with its really dark history of slavery um, in order for true reconciliation to occur he compares the u.s to germany where the holocaust is openly discussed and remembered um so you know with the intention of not having that tragedy ever happen again um, a tragedy of, of like that degree ever happen again um and he points out that the U.S. has never done this with slavery um, and, and thinks that this is a really critical thing for racial justice to ever actually occur. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that. And I think, his, I mean, he's starting a museum, right? That mm. And he sees that as important work for the legal work that he does. So I think it's, I, yeah, it all goes together. And then also it's just like this case is such an important reminder to people who try to discredit breaking the laws as a way to Mm. push action forward, it's such a good reminder that what's legal is not what's right. Yeah. Because this is, like, the Supreme Court deciding it, you know? And so, like, Martin Luther King, he realized this. Like, (laughs) it's hard for someone someone to classify, like, what is a moral law, which is what his argument is. Like, we have a duty to obey moral law, not not just all laws. But... You know, he's, he recognized that law and what's in, like, what's in code is not always going to be what's moral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think it's, like, you know, still relevant today, like, to think about who actually has access to justice. Um, we're going to get into the holding a little bit, but ultimately Dred Scott wasn't able to, yeah, Dred Scott wasn't able to avail himself of the federal court system. Those, that same issue of the legal system benefiting different people and like not equally is something that still exists today yeah so let's get a little bit more into dred scott 
So seven of the nine justices, which is important context, right? Yeah. Like we like to pretend that the justices are like neutral mm-hmm. arbiters who like have no biases of their own mm-hmm. and they're just reading the law and pooling truth from it, which is not the case at all. Yeah. So I, I really think it's important to point out that seven of the nine justices had been appointed by pro-slavery president and five of those nine justices were from slaveholding families. So when you're thinking about what in their minds is normal or like okay or you know not an issue this is important context for it yeah what were the facts of this case so dred scott was a person who's enslaved in missouri and uh but um for a portion of his life from 1833 to 1843 he lived in illinois which was a free state um and was also in an area of the louisiana territory where uh, slavery was forbidden uh, because of the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Um, And so after having lived in Illinois, Dred Scott went back to Missouri and he tried to sue in Missouri courts for his freedom, claiming that because he lived in free territory, that made him a free man. Um, And then he ultimately brought a new suit after that claim proved unsuccessful in federal court. Um, and the person who was the slave owner maintained that no quote-unquote pure-blooded Negro of African descent and the descendant of slaves could be a citizen in the sense of the article of Article Three of the Constitution. One of the things that I was surprised when I was looking over the facts of this case was that this happened when um dread scott's like this his slave the slave owner that had that he was owned by mm-hmm. before um like he died and then dread scott tried to get his freedom because i think like he the, the widow's brother was going to become the owner and i just i thought that was an is important because there there was something in the facts what i was reading that i didn't quite understand that it seems like there was a lot of complicated facts in terms of the movement mm. but he moved from place to place and at some point in one of the places that he lived, he could have petitioned for his freedom because of how long he had lived there, but he didn't. And that was just, like, for me, such a reminder of, like, it's there's one thing on the books and there's another thing, like, people having access to that and, like, knowing about that. Because I, I remember that being mentioned as one of the, like, oh, we wonder why he didn't do it then. Like, I don't know. I just thought that was worth noting because so often people are like, well, legally you can do this. And it's like, well, that's not always the only measure you should also see like do you have access to it do you know about it like how easy to apply for this i hear people use that a lot in terms of immigration now with legal permanent residents like why don't they just become citizens so it's i i don't know i just want to point that out because it's not always as cut and dry as just what's the law in the books yeah and like it does sound like those facts are really complicated and like it's probably no coincidence that he waited to sue until um the slave master died because like you know that meant that there was less intimidation less control um, yeah and like finally an opportunity to try and gain his freedom um yeah and i think actually like also i think that brings up for me another really important thing about the law is that oftentimes like what i think a co- like by common sense or intuitively we would think is the just outcome can't happen because of a technicality um, this happens all the time in immigration law. Like a person has to file within one year to be able to apply for asylum, and like a lot of people don't because they don't even know that asylum is a concept or a thing that they can apply for. 
and that makes all the difference in the world, like whether or not they can stay in the U.S. or will ultimately be deported. Um, and I think it's wild that something like whether or not you're going to be deported, whether or not you can be a free person can be dependent on a technicality. And here, are you talking about the technicality being like what the issue was that the Supreme Court decided? That like he could have petitioned in was it Illinois somewhere yeah that he could have petitioned in Illinois but because he ended up petitioning in Missouri at that specific time then he wasn't able to get access got you got you um yeah I hear you we we've kind of talked about this before about like process versus outcome and so I still like hesitate with that because like who's perceiving what's just you know like just gets really terrifying for me the more I think about that but, okay, so getting back to Dred Scott, so the issue in this case was whether the Supreme Court had jurisdiction over the case, which required answering whether Dred Scott was a citizen. And so this was the issue because the court, because um, Dred Scott, he argued that he was a citizen of Missouri and Sanford was a citizen of I, another state, I can't remember which one. And so that's done so that you can argue something in federal court because... Mm. Federal courts and state courts answer different questions about the law. Like, state courts, they have jurisdiction, like, ownership of the questions that arise from state law. And federal court focuses a lot more on, you know, if there's diversity of citizenship, meaning a Californian suing a Texan. Like, all of those, those can get into federal court. So because Dred Scott asserted that he and... Um, Sanford were from two different states. That's how he got into federal court after he had lost in state court. So the Supreme Court, when the case got to them, the Sanford alleged that Dred Scott was not a citizen, and so that therefore the Supreme Court did not have jurisdiction over the case. And so that's the whole issue that the, the Supreme Court was dealing with this. So Yvette, what conclusion did they come to? The court held that all people of African ancestry, whether or not they were enslaved or free, could not become citizens of the U.S. and as a result couldn't sue in federal court. They held that Dred Scott was a slave and that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional because uh, it wasn't in Congress's power to outlaw slavery in the territories. So one of the things that I I think is a good reason to like talk about this case is the discussion in it because they use so much reasoning that we still use today, right? So the justices, they based their decision on the intent of the framers. That was part of their consideration. And so the, the justice, Justice Taney, who wrote this opinion, he concludes that the word citizens in the Constitution did not include and was not intended to include individuals of African descent. And so although like that is so fucked up, it's honest and so much more honest than what the analysis than the analysis that we see happen today where you know people will try to like distort the constitution and its intent in order to like meet the standards of today's ethics or whatever but like this justice in this case who was like outright racist was honest that like no the framers were not thinking of black people as people like they did not admit, like they did not mean for the constitution or the declaration of independence to apply to black people and this justice was just pointing it out there's also so much other language that i thought was so bad in reading this it's definitely like one of those opinions that's like one it's like in, in english that's feels different for me but it's yeah. an opinion that like you have to read when you're in like in a specific emotional state yeah so 
like, for example, they say that when they're talking about the framers' intent and whatnot, they talk about they were at the time considered as a subordinate and inferior class of being who had been subjugated by the dominant race and whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to the authority and had no rights or privileges, but those who held the power in the government might choose to grant them. And I just, that, like, hearing someone talk that way and write that way about, a, like, people is so terrible. But it's just, it's an honest analysis of power and race I also felt. So I wanted to, I don't know, I just wanted to pull that quote out. But, yeah, I feel like that quote is, like, an important reminder of why black joy is revolutionary. Like, the people who constructed the legal framework in which we currently live did not see black people as people. And, like, that is why the state of our world is what it is today. And I think knowing that, you know, there were these class of white men who wanted to subjugate and oppress black people and that the effects of that are still present today and, like, explain so much of racial disparities today. I feel like, you know, people of color and black people especially, like, need to remember that their joy is revolutionary, that, like, because of the fact that we, you know, are pitted as inferior, like, loving yourself and seeing yourself as intelligent and beautiful is a radical act in and of itself. Yeah, no, I agree with you because, like, in this case, they t- every time he's talking about the the justice every time the justice talks about like selling black people or like their movement or the different laws that apply to them like he keeps talking about them as their labor for profit like and how what like the people who own them making decisions based as on profit as completely reasonable and it's just like i am more than my labor and i am more than the profit someone can get from me and so this case just completely reduces people to that and so yeah it's just I completely agree with everything you just said. And I think that also we need to remember that this idea of people as property and as of people as just like capitalist machines that we're going to glean exploitative labor from is something that is the logic of the prison system and also of our immigration detention system. Like there are still people who are growing food, who are like manufacturing products that are paid a dollar a day within prisons and within detention centers and that's seen as like okay because the state sees these people as property as like mechanisms for gaining profit yeah i i agree let's let's leave it there let's see where our discussion of dreads got there okay okay so yvette what current event are we talking about today Uh, We're talking about the recent conviction of the first quote-unquote black identity extremist. It's this new category that the FBI has created and it was revealed in a leaked memo. Um, Basically, they they think of the black identity extremist as a person who um, thinks of themselves as a sovereign citizen, as a person who also is very heavily into um, guns and like um, like armed equipment and also is like anti the US um, and I think it's just like important to recognize also that um, they're trying to map on the black identity extremist category to like Black Lives Matter activists and it's just those two things like aren't overlapping those two things don't match up or align um, 
And it, it this just fits into a larger history of the FBI targeting black activists. Um, can you, can co- you tell us more about that? Yeah, COINTELPRO. Pro. Um, so in the sixties, there now now we know that in the sixties there was a FBI program called COINTELPRO. Pro. Um, and actually it had a really similar black extremist categorization. Like I looked at some documents on the FBI website, it's all like public record. And it said like, it said black is- extremist, it didn't say black identity extremist, but it said black extremist. Um, and they, they targeted Martin Luther King, um, just doing really fucked up things. Like, um, he had affair, he had extramarital affairs and they recorded him like having sex with, um, the people who he was having affairs with and then would send the tapes to his house and like threaten to expose him as being immoral and like they um encourage him to commit suicide and like oh uh, yeah yeah uh, um and um so with cointel pro edgar hoover who was the fbi director at the time described the program as having the goal of destroying virtually every group with the word black in it so this is really, like, the same thing that we've seen before mm-hmm. all over again. Exactly, yeah. Um, I think it's, like, always important to, like, be on the lookout for any changes that are specific to this current moment, but basically it's just more of the same. Um, yeah, and I think, like, that's just why it's important to bring this up. It's, like, this strategy is not new. Um, overgeneralizing the black community to create a tool for mass surveillance and targeting is not a new thing. Um, the... You know their claim is that this like black identity extremist position on on police brutality in particular has sparked violence in turn against police officers which actually is like i feel like that's a good example of gaslighting like (laughs) like the black community is disproportionately targeted killed by the police but the fbi stance is that actually like the black community is creating violence against police officers yeah i hear you uh one of the things that I thought this was so important to talk about right now is because this like kind of parallels with what I've been seeing on Instagram, like on in memes with people saying like, oh, they'll 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 make fun of how they're being watched, right? Yeah. And so there's like all these memes about, you know, so your FBI agent watching you and like what you're doing on your laptop and like them wanting you to play next on the episode and, and they're funny but it, it scares me because it seems like our our generation or people today mm-hmm. have accepted as a given that the state that a state agent is watching them yeah and so this has the potential to like really fuck with um well to fuck fuck us over because it, it'll fuck with the privacy doctrine as we know it because it's based on expectations right so like if you um, claim that like the the law enforcement had did an invasion of your privacy, the one of the, the tests for that is your expectations. Part of the test is expectations, mm-hmm. like right? societal expectations. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, if our expectations are that we're being watched, then that means for the Supreme Court and for the analysis of the courts that you have less expectations of it. So that something which might have been an um, an invasion of it before no longer is because you expected the state to be doing that yeah and so all of this like it's just the more we learn about what the fbi is doing and the more we kind of like accept that we know the state is doing this it's just like this this loop right and so for all the reasons you mentioned but also for this i'm like oh my god here we go again yeah no and like actually like that has real consequences like um you know 
the doctrine says that we have a higher expectation of privacy in our home instead of our car which is why like you always need a warrant to search someone's home but like with a car you don't necessarily need one in all instances mm-hmm. and like I don't know. I well, think, we they not need a warrant for our laptops anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think that's a really good point. And like, um, it it is a little scary to think that people are just cool with constantly being surveilled by the government. Well, I don't think it's like people being cool with it. I think it's people like finding like laughing about something that's really fucked up. Yeah, that's like, my read of the memes. <laughs> yeah, I I think they're definitely coping mechanisms. But like, it's become so normalized. There, people aren't out of the streets protesting it. No, I agree. Yeah. Um, also, I wanted to point out, like, this practice in the context of, like, what we've been studying this last year, like, in human rights, mm-hmm. because I've, I've seen as a trend, and, like, it's, it's well documented that autocratic and dictator, dictatorships will, like, really not sometimes create, but sometimes just, like, really build up, like, a, a domestic threat in order to really justify a lot of surveillance and violence against your like your own people and also like a lot of restrictions on rights yeah and so like the more the fbi puts out this like oh like black extremist black identity extremists out there like trying to create violence against police and they're doing all these things the more that people in the society will kind of accept anything the government does which is just so awful because it works like it really works like i know someone from argentina who grew up there and he grew up there like upper middle class kind of status and i was talking to him i was just like about argentina and whether they like if there's museums i could go to to learn about like the terrible shit that happened the history of argentina is like there's a really bloody coup yeah yeah we'll talk about it more another time but yes there was a lot of lot a lot a lot of people killed in argentina and he was just like yeah but they you know the government had to do something against all the people that were causing all this domestic terrorism and like he was just he was just like everybody knows i grew up in argentina and we all know that you know there was a lot of problems that the government was facing and that's why the government did what it did and i was just like oh my god like the government's tactics worked and i'm so scared that for the majority of people in the u.s like the idea of a black ex- identity extremist would let them be like okay sure take away my civil rights like take away my liberties like just get it under control kind of thing yeah i mean i think we've already seen that with the discourse on terrorism you yeah post 9 11 like yeah. I, and i think that's my issue with national security in general it's like so okay the argument is that there's national security concerns so you're gonna take my civil liberties away but then when asked for proof then the government says like oh well we can't reveal that because then that would like make sorry yeah because that would actually like endanger national security as well we need to keep all these things top secret like we can't make these things public but it's just really hard because how does the public reckon with whether or not their actions are justified if you can't tell us what's going on yeah so what's going on right now with the categorization like how is it really like under under like underdeveloped or is it really developed or what where is it in its stages yeah so um the designation the way that they've currently described it now is that it links incidents of violence by a handful of individual citizens like uh, michael johnson who was a person who shot he was the person who shot 11 dallas police officers in 2016 um and it you know the fbi predicts that its quote-unquote perceptions of unjust treatment of the black community is then going to spark more violence against the police and again really good example of gaslighting yeah 
um, right? This is not a perception of being treated unjustly. Like, black people are dying at the hands of the state. This is not a perception. I know. It, they hammer down on the gaslighting because that <laughs> sentence, it says, the perception of unjust treatment of African Americans and the perceived unchallenged illegitimate actions of law enforcement. It's like, these things are not perceived. Yeah. These, this is real. And, like, that's such a classic example of gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially the FBI is creating this archetype that doesn't exist as a pretense for targeting a wide array of black activist organizations. Um, the report basically just paves the way for increased surveillance. Um, you know, Michael Johnson is not at all affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement, but I think by the way that they're laying all these things out, it's really clear that they're going to try and like encompass activist groups like Black Lives Matter in this surveillance that they're planning on doing. Should we talk about deference and the FBI? Yeah, I think so, because I think people like see the FBI really glorified in movies yeah. especially right now yeah with trump yeah but not just that like our mo- like our movies and our culture around the fbi and the cia is just like oh like agents going undercover and and so i think like there's this people are in awe of the fbi generally and then maybe sometimes when you get to more specifics you see how fucked up they've been so you know i think a lot of people want to give deference to the fbi you know it's like oh this is what their intelligence reports are telling them you know but it's it's important to keep it into the in the context that we do have, like, direct comparisons between how the FBI treats white supremacist groups and these other groups that are not violent. Yeah. Because, the, yeah, they're, like, the leak memo, like, is clearly targeting black communities, whereas they're not doing anything. Like, in, in fact, like, they are threatening to, like, shut down the budget that does look into the white supremacists, the ones that are clearly violent and are clearly part of a history of violence i think they might have defunded that already yeah Yeah. you know so it's just like here's one where they're like creating these new categories and there's here's this other department that's being defunded yeah so it's like that direct comparison it's like no the fbi does not get deference because guess what their actions and their budget and their spending and like their effectiveness is really racist yeah so they do not get deference like we we cannot just be like okay we trust you go ahead and do what you think is best like no Mm mm-hmm yeah, I agree. But is so is Congress going to do anything about this? What do you think? Oh, well, something I just thought was interesting was that the the Black Congressional Caucus met with the FBI director about this new designation and the chairman Cedric Richmond said speaking with the FBI director was a breath of fresh air as compared to speaking with the with the DOJ, the Department of Justice. And again, I just think it's really important to keep these statements in context like I just feel like now that our government has become so extremely white supremacist and overt about it, people see like very basic acts of like democracy or or just see not even democracy, just see like things that would have been expected before as something worthy of a gold star. Um, like, okay, the FBI director is more cordial and collegial than Jeff Sessions, a raving racist. Like this is just, <laughs> this is just like it's not really something to celebrate, I don't think. And like I think also Building off of what you were saying about how the FBI shouldn't get deference, um, you know, I think the liberal news media portrays the FBI as a beacon of hope. I think they've, that's how they've been, you know, like with Comey and the FBI investigation, like now this new, this new man, Christopher Ray, they're portraying the FBI as if it's like a check, a legitimate check on the executive power. Um, and we, 
I think communities of color need to remember that that is not the case for us. The FBI historically and currently is not an organization that is designed to protect the interests of black and brown communities. Um, like, actually, I remember I was reading an interview with someone who is like considered a liberal FBI director. I don't even know what that means. A liberal FBI director. <laughs> and he was like, he was, he was trying to justify why there's particular targeting of black activist groups instead of white activist groups. And he was like, oh, well, you know, it's just because, like, you know, some of these people, like, might, you know, I think they might, like, personally associate with white, you know, white supremacists or, like, they might know a person who's a part of a group, like, the cake. You know, it's, it's something that they're more familiar with. Like, maybe you know, maybe they themselves aren't a member of the KKK, but they have uh, a cousin who reads Breitbart. And like, basically was just trying to say like, they're more familiar with white supremacy. So that's why they see black activist groups as more of a threat. And it's like, that's a, that's just such a bullshit excuse. Like, just call it what it is. It's a white supremacist organization. Like there's white supremacists within the FBI. I can think of no better way to end than <laughs> on that. So Great. stop there. Okay. Okay, so we're going to talk about gaslighting, which I think we've mentioned before on the on this show. Yeah. And, you know, Yvette, what's a great way to, like, protect yourself against gaslighting? Putting headphones on and ignoring <laughs> what the person is saying. Don't you agree? Right? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, again, we just wanted to give a little plug for the studio headphones. Sleek and stylish. Something worth buying if you want to splurge on your, your listening wear. Uh, and if you do end up checking out the headphones, then use our discount code CITERONAS at checkout. Cool. Okay. But, so, to give gaslighting a definition, because we've mentioned it a lot and kind of explained it, but here's like a sentence we can think about it. So, when a hearer tells a speaker that the speaker's claim isn't that serious, or they're overreacting, or they're being too sensitive, or they're not interpreting the event properly... And so gaslighting really involves expressing doubts that the harm or injustice that the speaker is testifying to really happened as the speaker claims. So it's like it's a it's a really effective way to doubt the speaker's reliability at perceiving events accurately. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like how we people use gaslighting now, but the origins of the term really came from this um, from this play by Patrick Hamilton in 1938. But it was popularized by the film called Gaslight in 1944. And I really recommend watching the movie. I think it's... That's so interesting. I haven't heard of that movie. You haven't? No, I haven't watched it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I, like, haven't even heard of it. I think it's available on Amazon Prime. Oh, cool. Um, or maybe, like, cost, like, $2. I'm not sure. But I... Yeah, I really like it. I've watched it several times because I think it's, it's really effective at showing people what this is. But it also... Um, so just... This is going to be a spoiler. Like, I, I recommend watching it, but here's a spoiler alert about what's <laughs> happening. Um, so the plot is a husband who's trying to get his wife to doubt her memory and her sense perceptions so that he can convince her she's crazy and then put her in an institution so that he can, like, get, get her wealth, basically. And so people get, like, when they watch the film, they're left with the impression that gaslighting is only very intentional, like, Mm -hmm. someone actively trying to make you doubt what you think you're seeing, Mm -hmm. what you are seeing, Mm -hmm. but it's really not that in its modern day, where it's, like, in its modern day, it's not always, like, this overt intention part of a master scheme kind of thing. 
um, like gaslighting is really it's it's important to talk about gaslighting because it is really sneaky and it's subtle but it's pervasive so it can yeah so it's like everywhere we see it yeah I think that um, there are definitely abusers who intentionally use gaslighting but I think it is important to point out that this can be unintentional at times because like I think like for me like, like an area of growth that's happened for me is like recognizing that if I've upset somebody like even if I don't think that what I did merited that feeling. I need to respect that person's feelings as valid because they have those feelings. They exist and are true. And I, that's just something I wasn't taught. And I think like growing up, and I think that that's something that a lot of people aren't taught. And like, it's, it's just really common, especially in romantic relationships to just deny someone's reality. And it's like, we're all, sub we're all subjective beings. Like we perceive the world in our own individual way. And like, it's just not fair to tell someone like, oh, that's not what happened or that's like not, that's not reality because you're, you're not the objective arbiter of what reality is. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you're saying just goes to show that gaslighting can be done by allies, like quote unquote allies yeah. and good friends, you know? Mm -hmm. But even, even though it's unintentional, like I still want to recognize it as psychological warfare against yeah. like women or people of color or like women of color most mm -hmm. importantly because mm -hmm. it, it is it is psychological warfare um so let's talk i think let's talk about all the personal experiences we've had with gaslighting because i think that's a way to really kind of see it in action and understand it but i'm telling you like as soon as I learned the term gaslighting i couldn't stop seeing it everywhere yeah so I yeah same that happened to me too yeah. Okay, so um, what are some personal experiences you've had with gaslighting? Um, I think mostly, like, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, I remember one specific time, like, I was doing peer feedback, and on a memo, maybe, or maybe it was oral argument, I don't remember, it was something, and, like, the person was like, oh yeah, Yvette, something that you could do to improve on is, would be X, Y, and Z. And it was so weird because I had literally done that and also done it really well. Mm -hmm. And so the person just, like, didn't see me. And I was so confused, like, what? And then luckily, like, um, my friend Clegg was there and he was like, oh, no, Yvette did that, actually. You know, I, like, saved the moment. But the thing is, like, there's not always a Clegg there that is able to, like, validate your own reality. Um, but what about you? Was Clegg a person of color? Yeah. Oh, not shocked. <laughs> but so thrilled that we can be there for each other. Yeah. Um, so I think... Well, I think this whole week has been, like, with the whole Racism Lives Here Now campaign that we've been having at Stanford and at other law school campuses, it's, each day we've, like, kind of identified these common experiences, and I think they really get to, to common experiences of gaslighting. So, for example, um, one of the days was, like, okay, a classmate has made the same point or asked the same question in class after me, but without acknowledging my own contribution. Yeah. That's an example of gaslighting. It's, like, making it seem like you didn't even speak, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to say the exact same thing you said because it's, like, you didn't even say it. And so you are gaslighted because you're, like, did I not say it right? Did I not make sense? Like, did I not communicate my point clearly? So I think that's a perfect example, and that happens all the time. When people minimize race issues that's another thing we highlighted this week because that happens so often yeah like i'll call something out i'll be like this was really fucked up because of x y and z and people will be like you know i don't really think they meant it that way mm -hmm. or you know like I, I feel like you're kind of overreacting a little bit 
like all of that that's gaslighting like do not minimize these things like i see them i'm able to tell what someone intended yeah i'm able to understand the interaction we just had like and this is my analysis of it which is like i don't see why you need to minimize my analysis yeah and even if it's not intentional it's like you feel the way that you feel and you don't like there's no objective truth like you don't need to like meet some threshold of like x y and z happened and therefore it was racist like if you feel that something that occurred to you was racist that's it that's the only like question that needs to be answered yeah and i feel like people always try to people don't acknowledge that there is like no objective truth they try to no they try to make it seem like there's another way to see in the see the same situation that's in a way that's like not offensive um and they try to make it seem like you're offended because you're emotional or because you're always thinking about race right like you have you see it this way because of all these things you have that are wrong with you and not the situation yeah Um, yeah it's just fucked up because like they privilege their own subjective understanding of the world over yours but try and act like it's the objective understanding of the world yeah yeah and so it's it's this reminds me of like what just happened earlier this week where i don't know if you saw the whole facebook drama did you see it yeah yeah, do you want to talk about it yeah um so one of the posters I was put up by the Racism Lives Here 2 campaign was one that said, I have trouble with Chinese names. I'm much better with Italian-German names. Um, and it just started this whole like shit post of a thread because someone commented being like, I don't think this is actually an example of racism. And it was, it was so bizarre because it was a white man who was on some righteous thing about how he knew what racism really is. And that, like, for a person to say that something like that was racist is, like, messing up the whole campaign and making us lose credibility, which, like, just goes to show, like, if that, this poster, which, like, actually is an example of racism, like, I actually think it's a really important thing to recognize because um, the the Asian American community and the Latinx community um, are constantly coded as foreign and yeah. like are you know as such like never never seen as fully american citizens and, like yeah. that's a lot of implications like you know even just within our immigration system alone yeah um and so it's like just because it's like a you know one small component of that larger issue doesn't mean that it's irrelevant you know i mean again it's like this person like she explained the context and explained that like the professor just kind of like out of nowhere made that comment even though her last name actually is easy to pronounce and he doesn't have trouble pronouncing it it was just something he like felt like was important to say and it's like that's weird but why she felt uncomfortable in the classroom and like she shouldn't feel uncomfortable in the classroom yeah Um, i was actually in that class oh really yeah oh uh and it was like this really really problematic professor like a lot of the posters and like a lot of things that have been shared over this last week were about his class um and and yeah, so terrible. He because he constantly mispronounced certain people's names. Like he constantly mispronounced my name, and it's like it's a mesqua. That's it. Like it's easy. Like literally, the way it's spelled is how it's read. Yeah. And like he and like with this statement, like he messed up a certain amount of people's names, and then like all of a sudden he like also said this statement. It was just like you're not, you didn't just mess up an, a name. You're just like putting it out there, like as if it's a objective but what really pissed me off about the whole facebook post and the, yeah. this white male telling women of color that something wasn't racist is that he tried to make it seem like science says this yeah. is not, this is objectively not racist and not offensive because science and it was just like 
that's that's such a typical move. It's like, oh, you're emotional female, mm-hmm. and but really things like science and rationality say that this isn't offensive. Where it's like, look, honestly, if you look at the whole history of science, like science is all about overturning itself, like. Literally, like, everything science, like, decides is true. The next great <laughs> discovery is that it wasn't true, and it's actually this. Yeah. So, like, for when somebody tries to bring up science, I'm like, literally, we don't know what the fuck we're doing most of the time. Yeah. But second of all, like, no, emotions are just as rational and logical as, aka, reason. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, like, I, you know, okay, yes, like, the thing he was pointing to is that um, it's, like, natural for our brains to, like, have familiarity with phonetic sounds that we heard as children. And, like, if you didn't hear certain languages and certain phonetic sounds early on in life, then it's harder for you to pronounce those names as an adult. But the thing is, like, okay, we can, we can like, concede that that's true, but we can't act like those things don't exist in a social context where, like, people make more of an effort to learn how to pronounce Italian and German names than they do, like, Chinese names. That was the whole point of the poster, I think, that the, I think the the woman who posted it said that. There was, like, you know, like, it's just not hard to pronounce my name. It's just that, like, you don't think I'm worth that effort, and that is what's racist. Yeah, and then just going back to, like, the what the science argument is, like, oh, if you're not exposed to it, it's like, oh, why was I not exposed to it? Because um, these communities have been here. Like, there are Asian communities and Latino communities all over the United States. So, like, hmm, why wasn't I exposed to it? Oh, yeah, because of, like, racist-ass covenants yeah. and, like, zoning laws. Mm-hmm. So even that's, like, even that science, like, in its, and I'm using quotation marks around science, like, in its own vacuum, like, that's still based on racism, okay? So, like, even if it was just that, that's still based on racism. Ugh, I'm so angry this week. (laughs) You know, there's a lot to be angry about. Okay, but let's talk a little bit about what are some tools that you've used to fight gaslighting, or, like, what, what is your strategy for, like, dealing with gaslighting? It's a process because, like, the most important thing is trusting yourself. And, um, and trusting your emotions and also seeing your feelings as valid. And, like, the, the specific piece about seeing my feelings as valid is still a work in progress because sometimes I'm like, oh, no, that was, like, irrational. Or, like, oh, no, that's not the right emotion I should have. But it's, like, it's the emotion that I have. That's it. Um, so it's still, like, a work in progress. But I think, like, working towards those things... I can't think of, like, concrete ways that I'm doing that. I journal a lot. I think that's probably how I, like, try and, like, intentionally process these things. But um, in trusting yourself, you come to trust your own reality. And, like, that's just what this is. Um, And I think that's why it affects women of color so much. Because, like, we're socialized into doubting ourselves and socialized into, like, not believing our own truth. Um, So I think just, like, trying to be intentional and reflective about getting over those things is what has helped me. What about you? I think for me, it's been learning to recognize, like, the key words that someone is, like, often comes up when someone is gaslighting you. So, for example, like, like, and, like, the thing is, like, people already know this concept, but I don't think they just, like, been able to name it. Because people get so mad when you tell them, calm down. Mm. And it's, like, the reason you're getting mad that someone's telling you, calm down, is because they're gaslighting you. They're making you think that whatever is happening, like, doesn't deserve the reaction you're doing, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, like, oh, my God, calm down. You're overreacting. It's, like, 
So it's like that, right? So when someone's telling me calm down, I'm like, you're about to gaslight me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. Or when someone tells me like, oh, I don't think he intended or I don't think this. I'm just like something, something about to be gaslighted. And then another thing that I've learned to like notice besides like these words that someone is using is how I'm feeling. Yes. So mm-hmm. if like I all of a sudden become uncomfortable or I become like, you know, confused or something, like, if I feel like, if I start getting, like, defensive or start feeling like I need to retreat, like, all of those emotions I realized are, like, signals that someone is gaslighting me. Mm-hmm. Like, there's something that has happened in, in response to something that I said that's making me uncomfortable. Why is that? And it's, like, a lot of the times it's because somebody's trying to gaslight me and I'm just like, oh, hell no. So it's just, like, being able to pick up on those things, like, recognize them, like, no, 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 no. Like, I didn't just do this out of nowhere. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm now recalling, like, an article that I read that was, like, pointing out the ways to, per, like, ways to check if you're being gaslighted, and it, it had a lot to do with how you feel. It's, like, if, because this is often a pattern, like, if you, actually, like, what ends up happening is that some people, like, when they get into a verbal argument with somebody, they won't remember what was said. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's, like, a, a, something, like, a defensive mechanism that your brain does, that it just, like, loses that memory because it's confusing to hold both of those things like at the same time like that memory where the person was being emotionally abusive and then also like this now current memory of this person being like that didn't happen so like your brain will like forget the fight which is really scary um and then also if you feel just what you said like if in leaving interactions with people you just feel shitty you know that thing is general litmus test for whether or not someone's worth spending your time around um (laughs) Yeah, I can't remember what the other ones were, but maybe I'll like post the article on the yeah on we the should show notes. No, yeah, we should find it because gaslighting I think is like one of those things that we really need to like be on top mm-hmm. and and fight it because it can really fuck with you in ways yeah. that you don't realize. Mm-hmm. Great, let's let's leave it there okay. with all y'all with a tool to fight <laughs> this systemic oppression. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Yvette, what are you recommending this week? Um, I went to go see the movie Maze Runner with my friend, and, like, I hadn't heard about the series at all. It's, like, the third movie. Is that the one you went in with a wine bottle? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. It's such a good time. Um, yeah, oh, my God, because the seat had, the theater had reclining seats and, oh um, like, my God. seat warmers, and we also had the <laughs> bottle of wine. It was just amazing. Um, yeah, Maze Runner, it's, like, kind of like Hunger Games, but I, I actually liked it more than Hunger Games, and it's, like... It portrays this dystopic world where there's this terrible virus that there's no cure for and it like is deadly and makes people into like zombies basically. Um, and so there's this... Yeah, that sounds <laughs> pleasant. Yeah. I really like dystopic <laughs> movies. I don't know. Because I feel like our reality is like very close to dystopia. So I just like... You go for research. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, what would I do? Um, yeah. And like these... And like the stories that there's this group of scientists that... Because there's, like, I guess, a small number of people, of young people, that are immune to the virus. And this group of scientists is, like, keeping them captive and, like, running terrible tests on them and torturing them and trying to find a serum that's a cure for the um, for the disease. And then you see these, like, rebels that are trying to, like, stop the scientists because they think it's ethically wrong to torture people just for this, like, quote-unquote greater good. I think it's, like, yeah, like, a lot of, like, really deep issues that the movie brings up and, like... I also don't think it's a coincidence that there's so many of these dystopic movies right now because I feel like people, you know, <laughs> I think people do feel like 
they're in precarious financial situations and they're like what is our government like um I don't know it's like it's just a it's like a fun movie but also you know I think brings up stuff worth reflecting on well I'll look into it yeah (laughs) Um, I want to recommend this artist that I actually met and, like, purchased some of her artwork at one of Oakland's First Fridays. Oh, cool. When I went. Um, her Instagram name is I-U-N-E-V-E-N-O underscore art. I don't know how to pronounce that. I, I'm sure it's... Yeah, it's, I don't know. I'm sure it's pronouncing something, but yeah. I'm not sure what. Yeah. Um, but I love her art. It's, like, making all these popular characters, like... Harry Potter and like Hermione and Ron and all these other characters like drawing them but as black and I'm like yes why like there's no reason all of these characters have to be white yeah and so many people have talked about like when they first read the description for Hermione Granger Mm -hmm. they thought it was describing a black woman because of like the hair and all this different stuff and so intelligence (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly and so I bought the one she made of Jessica Rabbit because I really like the color red and like the dress and like I just I thought it was so beautiful and so I'll post her Instagram so that y'all can buy her artwork. Like, I think it's gorgeous. I think it's exactly the kind of art we need to see out in the world so that we, like, stop making white people the norm and yeah. the default for everything. Really important. Yeah. Okay. So finally, in wrapping up, we wanted to let you know about another podcast that we think you all might like. It's a podcast filled with stories of courage, resilience, and culture, and it's called Que Pasa Midwest. It's bilingual, and it's about Latinx people in the Midwest, as you could probably surmise. Um, And I think it's just a good place to check out stories of immigration, Latinx art and culture, Latinx people in the military, etc., etc. I listened to their first episode, and it was about pulque, which is a drink that the Aztecs would make from the nectar of a cactus plant. And that is now being enjoyed, being made and enjoyed by people in Illinois, which I think is like so wild to think about, like how that all the things that happened in history to make that happen. Um, it's just like cool. It's like fun, and you learn new stuff. When I was in Mexico City, they had pulque, oh, and really? I was just like, it's it looks too thick for me to drink, so I didn't try it, but I, I should have because I love shit like tejuino, you know, like I love tejuino, so I'm like I should be more brave and try and all these things, but like eggplant, it took me forever. What's that? It's, I don't know how you make it, but you, they, I buy it on the side of the roads in Mexico and sometimes in LA and it's like lemony and I don't know how to, it has salt on the rim. It's hard to describe. It's hard to describe, it's but I know a lot of people don't like it. It's a drink? Yeah, it's a drink. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, I'm like disappointed in myself that I didn't try pulque, but it's just like whenever I see things that are thicker, like eggplants, you know how they're like thicker, but yeah, like the same. texture, yeah. Yeah, I can't get with it, but I need to try it, but I'm going to listen to this podcast and learn more about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, we'll convince you. Yeah. Well, Yvette, it's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm. It's been nice to do a real episode. Oh, real. Our Chiquita says are real, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And those were great, too. But yeah. It, yeah, it was definitely nice to just, like, hang out, be with your cat, and talk about these things. It's not my cat, it's my roommate's cat. <laughs> oh, well, you know. Nobody possesses the cat, anyway. True, true. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.